I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our guide to the essential and the unexpected from across the week. I'm Josie Delap, and coming up, Egypt is building a new capital city, but can Egyptians afford to live there? Why more people are braving the bullring in America? And an exclusive first taste of our brand new daily current affairs podcast. But first, our cover story, which this week stepped back to consider the entire world. Globalisation looked like it was here to stay. In rich countries, the idea that you can buy almost anything, almost anywhere, is now taken for granted. But the global flow of money and goods is stagnating. This week's issue hails a new era, not of globalisation, but of what we have called slobalisation. The cost of moving goods has stopped falling. Multinational firms have found that global sprawl burns money and that local rivals often eat them alive. Activity is shifting towards services, which are harder to sell across borders. Scissors can be exported in 20-foot containers, but hairstylists cannot. And Chinese manufacturing has become more self-reliant, so needs to import fewer parts. Meanwhile, the rules of international commerce are being rewritten, and not only between America and China. Rules on privacy, data and espionage are splintering. Tax systems are being bent to patriotic ends. In America, to prod firms to repatriate capital. In Europe, to target Silicon Valley. America and the European Union have new regimes for vetting foreign investment, while China, despite its bluster, has no intention of giving foreign firms a level playing field. The map of global trade is changing. As global rules decay... A fluid patchwork of regional deals and spheres of influence is asserting control over trade and investment. Supply chains in North America, Europe and Asia are sourcing more from closer to home. The EU is stamping its authority on banking, tech and foreign investment, for example. China hopes to agree on a regional trade deal this year, even as its tech firms expand across Asia. But we warned that slobalisation will not fix the problems that globalisation created. Automation means that there will be no renaissance of blue-collar jobs in the West. Climate change, migration and tax dodging will be even harder to solve without global cooperation. Slobalisation will be meaner and less stable than its predecessor. In the end, it will only feed the discontent. Parag Kanna of the strategy firm FutureMap has been studying this changing geography of world trade. On the latest episode of our podcast, The Economist Asks, we asked him whether trade becoming more regional will only cement Chinese hegemony. 
We are definitely not talking about a Chinese hegemony. We're talking about Chinese first mover advantage. What China has done with the Belt and Road Initiative is to penetrate certain markets that were post-colonial, post-Soviet republics that have been ignored for a long time. And they've built and helped to finance the fundamental infrastructures that will help these economies grow. Pakistan, Uzbekistan, and so forth. Over time, these countries are actually going to become more attractive to capital markets and they'll increase the volumes of foreign investment they receive from around the world. And they will actually dilute China's dominance in their economy. They build the roads, but everyone gets to use the roads. China is building roads, but all roads don't lead to Beijing. And that's the way the future is going to play out. And you can go deeper into how businesses need to adapt for the globalized world by subscribing to The Economist. The first 12 issues are just $12 or £12 if you go to economist.com forward slash radio offer. Now we have an announcement to make. Regular listeners will be familiar with our weekly podcast series. There's Babbage exploring the latest in science and technology, Money Talks on business and finance, and our chat show The Economist Asks. But we have something new for you. A 20-minute daily current affairs podcast bringing you a unique perspective on the events and trends shaping your world. It's hosted by Jason Palmer and it's called The Intelligence. Here's a taste of what's to come. Every weekday, we'll bring you what you need for the day ahead. Clarity and context on the stories shaping your world. From politics... NATO is militarily flourishing, yet it's politically in a bit of a funk. The reality is is that the longer this continues and the longer the Syrian war continues, the more Turkish attitudes towards Syrians will, will harden. British institutions have been incredibly damaged. The least thing we could do is to ask people, what is your collective will? To business. He then became known as the Kairetsu killer, Kairetsu being this kind of web of cross-shareholdings. And in fact, surprisingly for a foreign executive, um, he actually developed quite a kind of a following in Japan. The analogy that a lot of people are using in China is saying, well, this is a bit like Tim Cook, who's the boss of Apple. Suppose he was arrested in Singapore and extradited to China. That would cause a huge stink in the US. To science and culture. You know, there's something bold about measuring yourself against the universe. The deeper issue is how every generation makes the art of their time. That's what's happening here. Sign up now to make sure you get the first episode. Search for The Intelligence from The Economist in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Back to this week's paper, where our Egypt correspondent reported from the country's new capital. It's a nameless ghost city, standing empty in the desert, 50 kilometres from Cairo. Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the president, is not the first Egyptian ruler to move the capital. The pharaohs had Thebes and Memphis, to name just two. Alexandria was the heart of Greco-Roman Egypt. The modern capital dates back to 969 AD, when Fatimad conquerors commissioned a walled city to mark their triumph. A millennium later, the city victorious, as it is known, has become a city tumultuous, a congested sprawl of 23 million people. The new city is meant to ease pressure on Cairo and, some say, boost Mr Sisi's ego. When and if it is finished, the new city will stretch over 700 square kilometres, about the size of Singapore. Instead of Cairo's teeming slums and cramped alleys, it features wide boulevards and neat rows of high-rises. The parliament hopes to move there this summer, but the big question is whether ordinary Egyptians will follow. 
Since the 1970s, the government has littered the desert with planned cities meant to ease congestion. One called New Cairo, east of Old Cairo, was supposed to attract up to 5 million residents. It has less than one-tenth of that. The new capital will have jobs, but few civil servants can afford to live there. On average, they earn 1,247 Egyptian pounds, that's $70, a week. Last year, the housing ministry listed apartment prices in the city at more than £11,000 per square metre. Around them, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Covering American politics can be a white-knuckle ride in itself. But last week, one of our correspondents went off in search of even greater thrills and spills. Thousands roar as beast and man fly. They swirl under floodlights. The bull bucks, legs high off the sandy arena floor, until the rider detaches and tumbles upwards, mercifully away from horns and wild hooves, aloft and rotating for an improbably long time. Then he crumples in the dirt. As with seven out of ten such efforts, the rider did not stay on for the eight seconds considered necessary. He collects bruises, but no points. Bull riding is becoming ever more popular, despite being America's most dangerous sport. Researchers say 1,440 injuries occur for every 1,000 exposure hours, a rate 1.56 times riskier than boxing and 10.3 times worse than in American football. The uninitiated may wonder what the appeal is. Sean Gleason, who runs PBR, estimates that half of any crowd at a big event like Chicago's is well-versed in the rider's skills, even if many also want to see the wreck, the guy flying through the air. We are masculinity on steroids, he says with a chuckle. If you think that's a problem, then don't buy a ticket. We are tough guys riding bulls. This week's obituary paid homage to a gentler man's passion the fleet-fingered magic of Marcel Azola and his accordion. The history of the accordion is not a happy one. For decades, serious musicians have mocked it as the discordant, breathy, vulgar voice of peasants, clowns and fairground hucksters. So when Marcel Azola was asked in September 1968 to play his accordion to accompany Jacques Brel, the great Belgian chansonnier, at a recording of his song Vesoul, he was hardly surprised by a line in the lyrics, I can't stand accordions. But of course he played. And he unleashed such a torrent of notes at such speed to illustrate the potential of his own instrument to dazzle as well as annoy that Brel was astonished. Chauffe, Marcel, chauffe, he cried in that voice rattled with ennui and four packs of cigarettes a day. Hot it up, take it away. The phrase passed into the language and after that Mr Azola, to his surprise, found himself famous. The accordion may have first come to France on the backs of Italian migrants, like Azola's own family, but he believed his instrument was truly noble. He fought his corner in France and it paid off. As a professor for 20 years at the National Music School in Orsay, he campaigned mightily for accordion to be included as a course at the Paris Conservatoire. He had the delight not only of achieving that in 2002, but of sitting on the jury that chose the first prof d'accordéon. 
If anyone doubted his instrument's fine heritage, he could show them his collection. These accordions had bodies of rosewood, tortoiseshell and walnut, inlaid with ivory, copper and gold. They bore mythical scenes and bas-reliefs of great composers. He would walk among them marvelling, stroke them, play them carefully, overjoyed and moved to make music on them. And as the final strains of this week's tasting menu fade away, rest assured that there's plenty more where that came from at economist.com or from Economist Radio on your podcast app. I'm Josie Delap, and in London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.